Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. and welcome to episode 119 of the criminology podcast i'm mike ferguson and i'm mike morford mr morford how are you i'm doing good how about you man i'm doing great i really am i've got my health my family's got their health i mean what else can you ask for man i'm right there with you i look for the same same things in life that you're looking for morph we continue to see some great patreon support so let's give our shout outs we had s vidya Trish Ramey Neal, Lacey Valentine, Beatrice Vasquez, Eileen Heaney, Lynn Powell, and Tegla Ionet. So thank you all for the tremendous support. Yeah, that's some some amazing support. We say it every week and, and continue to be amazed by that. We appreciate it. If there's anyone out there that would like to support criminology on Patreon, they can do so by going to patreon.com slash criminology. So, Morph, last week's episode, the interview that you did with James Huddle, the former brother-in-law of Golden State killer Joseph J. D'Angelo, we've gotten a ton of really good response from that interview. I think, number one, people just cannot get enough information, right, about the Golden State killer, D'Angelo his earlier crimes, all of that. I mean, he continues to fascinate people. And I think it was very timely, right, with the court proceedings that, you know, have happened in the last couple of weeks. And I think since the arrest, people have wanted to have an insight into his mind and, and see things from a different perspective. And, and maybe something like a discussion with James Huddle you know, allows people to see D'Angelo from a different view. And I don't think he had any earth shattering bomb dropping details that he gave us, but it was still uh, to me interesting just to hear about how normal some things were for the most part and how well he hid the things that he was doing as, as good as he did. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was very interesting. Like you said, I mean, there were, there weren't any, oh my gosh, I knew it back then or, you know, type of moments. But I think anytime you have a serial killer and especially one so prolific, uh, somebody that committed crimes over such a long span of time, the desire of people to want to know some of those things, right? That really happened. I mean, we told the story, but we don't know, you know, everything that was going on in, D'Angelo's life. I mean, heck, we didn't even know it was D'Angelo at the time. So, you know, anytime you can hear from a relative, some, a, a really good friend, something like that. I mean, they're going to shed some insight into this person. And I think that's fascinating. Yeah, and I, I think part of it also is that people just want some kind of explanation. They're searching for something that says, okay, 
there has to be something that made him do what he did. And, and that's what they're looking for, I think. But uh, maybe there isn't, maybe there is no answer like that. Maybe we'll never know why someone like D'Angelo did what he did. Well, in, in some cases, a killer kind of bears all, right? Tells the police, okay, here's what I was thinking. This is why I did it. But some of them don't. And when they don't, people are left to wonder and try to figure that out for themselves. But anyway, it seems to be getting a lot of positive response. We're getting positive feedback from it. So that's an awesome thing. All right, buddy, we have to jump into this case. We're talking about the Osage Native American murders, which were a string of murders of tribal members in Osage County, Oklahoma, between 1921 and 1926. This was a time period known in that state as the Reign of Terror. At least 60 wealthy, full-blooded Osage Native Americans were murdered over land rights. Of the many victims, five were from the family of Molly Burkhart, a wealthy, full-blooded Osage Native American. A massive investigation in the takedown of a powerful and influential man ended the murders, but the senseless killings will forever be a part of the history of the Osage. Osage County, Oklahoma is the state's largest county by area, and it's located in the north central part of the state. It's home to the Osage Native American tribe and adjacent to the Osage Nation Reservation. According to the Oklahoma Historical Society's website, by 1760, the Osage of Missouri had increased their range to include present Osage County. They surrendered their claim to the region in 1825, and in 1839 were removed and transferred to a reservation in Kansas. In 1835, the Osage area was included in the Perpetual Outlet West, guaranteed to the Cherokee Nation under the Treaty of New Ashota. According to the North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources, the treaty gave the Cherokees $5 million and land in present-day Oklahoma in exchange for their 7 million acres of ancestral land, and it provided the legal basis for the Cherokee people's forced removal from their ancestral homeland in the South, their Trail of Tears. On July 15, 1870, under the Reconstruction Treaties of 1866, the Sage bought approximately 1.5 million acres from the Cherokee Nation in present-day Osage County. The Osage became the only Native American nation to purchase its own reservation, something that they were very proud of, and they looked forward to watching it flourish. In 1896, a man named Henry Foster received a 10-year oil lease on the entire Osage reservation, and his brother, Edwin Foster, formed the Phoenix Oil Company to manage the contract. In October 1897, the company drilled the first successful oil well in the Osage Nation and Oklahoma Territory. Over the following two decades, it produced more wealth than all of the American gold rushes combined. The Phoenix Oil and Osage Oil Companies merged in 1901 to form the Indian Territory Illuminating Oil Company which subleased the eastern part of the Osage Reservation. The company's lease was terminated in 1916, and 160-acre tracts were leased at public auctions. 
Congress passed the Osage Allotment Act on June 28, 1906. It specified that property and mineral income was to be distributed equally among the 2,229 members of the Osage tribe. One equal share was known as a head right. After being surveyed, platted, and appraised, the first lot auction was held on January 1, 1906. Sometime around 1925, the annual head right income of an Osage family of five was more than $65,000. That's a lot of money for back then. Today, that would be the equivalent of almost a million dollars. But we know when there's a lot of money involved, that sometimes it leads to greedy people doing bad things. Unfortunately, the oil boom unleashed an era known as the Reign of Terror on the Osage between 1921 and 1926. One tribal family in particular was affected the most during this brutal time. Molly Kyle was born on December 1st, 1866 to Jimmy and Lizzie Nikaese, the second daughter of four. Her sisters were Anna, Minnie, and Rita. Molly was only 10 years old when the first oil was discovered. Her father went by his Osage name, Nikaese. He and Lizzie both grew up on a reservation in Kansas. The couple married in 1874 and settled in Gray Horse, Oklahoma. A trader later started calling Nikahese Jimmy. And soon after, so did other traders, and eventually it replaced his Osage name. The same happened with his daughters. In 1894, the government forced Molly's parents to enroll her at a Catholic school called the St. Louis School in Pahuska. The government threatened to withhold its annuity payments if they didn't comply. Molly had to stop wearing her Native American outfits at the school, and instead she was forced to wear a plain dress. She was not allowed to speak in her native tongue, and she had to learn English. Molly attended school eight months out of each year. Molly and her family each received a head right. Head rights could not be bought or sold. They had to be inherited. Unfortunately, this also made killing a deadly but straightforward way to gain control of a head right. In 1917, Molly married Ernest Burkhart, the son of a poor Texas cotton farmer and nephew of a prominent domineering cattle rancher named William K. Hale. He was known in Osage County as King of the Osage Hills. Ernest was white, and all of Molly's sisters also married white men, which back then wasn't common or accepted by many people. By 1921, Ernest and Molly had two children, Elizabeth and James. The family lived in a beautiful home in Greyhorse and was well off financially. Molly owned several cars and had many servants. After Molly's father died in 1913, her mother, Lizzie Kyle, moved in with her and Ernest. Molly's sister, Minnie, died after a brief illness in 1918. Minnie's husband, Bill Smith, later married Minnie and Molly's sister, Rita Kyle. The reign of terror began with the murder of Molly's oldest sister, Anna Brown. On May 21st, 1921, Molly was getting her home ready for a small luncheon and she asked her husband to call Anna to see if she'd come over to help take care of their mother, Lizzie. When Anna arrived at Molly's home, 
She was noticeably drunk. Anna had once been married to Oat Brown, who owned a livery business, but he was often physically abusive to Anna, and the couple eventually divorced. But the breakup led to Anna's excessive drinking at the local bars. Guests had started arriving at the luncheon, and Molly was not happy with her sister's behavior. Two of Ernest's brothers, Brian and Horace, who lived nearby, were also there. They often helped out at their uncle's ranch. On the day of Molly's luncheon, Anna brought along a flask of alcohol and regularly took swigs. She started making a scene and began flirting with Brian Burkhart, who she sometimes dated. Eventually, Anna began to fight with the luncheon guest, so Brian offered to give her a ride home. It was the last time Anna Brown was seen alive. When Anna hadn't contacted Molly after three days, Molly sent Ernest to check up on her. When Ernest arrived at Anna's home, the door was locked. He knocked on the door, and Anna's servant answered. He asked her if she had seen Anna, but the woman said no. Upon hearing the news, Molly tried not to panic. After all, in the past, Anna had left for several days at a time, often taking off to Kansas City and Oklahoma City. But as it would turn out, Molly had every reason to panic. On May 28, 1921, an oil worker named Jerry Fowler found a dead body around 10 a.m. on Dial Hill, about a mile north of Pahuska, near an old derrick on the Garnett oil lease. The victim was male and had two bullet wounds to the forehead. The body was so badly decomposed that it was impossible to make an identification. Someone checked the victim's pockets and found letters addressed to a 25-year-old man named Charles Whitehorn. Whitehorn had gone missing a few days before Anna Brown. He and his wife had arrived in Pahuska several weeks before on a visit and were staying at a local hotel when he vanished. Whitehorn was a member of the Osage tribe. The body was taken to a local funeral parlor for an inquest. Around the time Whitehorn's body was discovered, two men, J.M. Robinson and Andy Smith, and one of the men's teenage sons were squirrel hunting near Three Mile Creek, several miles northeast of Greyhorse. The son shot a squirrel and went to retrieve it. That's when he suddenly screamed for his father. The boy had found a dead body near the edge of the creek. The bloated corpse appeared to be of a Native American woman. She was lying on her back with her open eyes staring up at the sky. An empty whiskey bottle lay next to her on the ground. The man ran to get help, but couldn't find any lawmen. So they went to Scott Mathis, a local man who owned the Big Hill Trading Company, and they told him about their discovery. Mathis rounded up several men and headed to the scene to assist in retrieving the body. Because of the condition of the body, identification was impossible, but everyone there wondered if the woman was Anna Brown. They contacted Molly Burkhart to come and see if the victim was her sister. Molly and her husband, Ernest, her sister, Rita, and Rita's husband, Bill Smith, showed up at the scene. Unable to identify the body by looking at its face, Molly recognized Anna's clothes and positively identified the body as that of her sister, Anna Brown. Anna's body was hoisted into a wooden box. At the scene, Judge H.E. Wilson, 
who was acting as coroner, impaneled a jury and handpicked the jurors from among the white men at the location of Anna's body. These men had to determine whether Anna had died of natural causes or by way of a homicide. Two doctors who were brothers, James and David Shown, performed the autopsy on Anna's body while it rested inside the wooden box. Remember, this is the 1920s, a far cry from the controlled, sterile environment that this type of examination would be done in today. They examined her clothes for tears, or stains, but found nothing. Humidity and decomposition made it virtually impossible to determine the time of death. But they estimated Anna had been dead between five and seven days. The brothers then examined Anna's head and found a bullet hole in the back of her skull. The bullet had entered just below the crown on a downward trajectory. Based on the evidence before them, they felt that Anna Brown had been murdered in cold blood. When the Shown brothers cut into Anna's brain to retrieve the bullet for evidence, there wasn't a bullet there. The local sheriff, Harv Freeze, and his men searched the area where Anna's body was found, but they never found the bullet. Someone did find one of Anna's earrings and returned it to her family. In a separate examination, the Shown brothers were able to retrieve two bullets from the skull of Charles Whitehorn and determined that they most likely came from a 32 caliber pistol. Authorities were hoping to see if the bullet that killed Anna Brown matched the bullets that killed Charles Whitehorn. Authorities now had two murder victims who were Osage and wealthy. Some felt that the murders had to be connected. It made sense because if not, they thought, okay, this would be a huge coincidence that the victims went missing around the same time and their bodies were found the same day. Because Anna had divorced her husband, her head right went directly to her mother, Lizzie who had also inherited the head rights of her late husband, Jimmy, and her deceased daughter, Minnie. Molly tried to get the authorities to investigate her sister's murder, but her cries fell on deaf ears, because no one seemed to have concern for two murdered Native Americans. But even if they had shown interest in investigating Anna's murder, it would have been nearly impossible to solve. There were no eyewitnesses, no physical evidence, and the location of the bodies had been trampled on by several men who likely contaminated any evidence that may have been left behind. By July 1921, the Justice of the Peace had closed his inquiries into Anna Brown's murder and stated that her death was at, quote, the hands of parties unknown. He said the case would remain closed unless new facts or evidence came along. Molly and her family had lost so much in a short amount of time. Their pain was unbearable, but sadly, their loss did not end with Anna's death. On July 17, 1921, Lizzie Kyle passed away. Even though she had been ill, her death was quick and completely unexpected. Molly's brother-in-law, Bill Smith, was the first to become suspicious of the deaths in the family. His first wife, Minnie, died unexpectedly like Lizzie, in 1918. Now, Anna and Lizzie were dead as well. Something wasn't right, was what Bill Smith was thinking. He just had no way of proving it. 
Hey folks, we want to introduce you to the game June's Journey. If you haven't played this, you don't know what you're missing, it's so much fun. For you amateur sleuths, it really brings out the inner detective because it's all about finding clues and solving mysteries. You get to play as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You have to use your observation skills, solve mind-teasing mysteries. I love the graphics on this game. I love the hidden object aspect of it it's full of mystery danger and even romance you can even customize your very own luxurious estate island and you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club you'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test so you know, escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker while you travel back to the glamorous 1920. I've been playing this game for a couple of years now, and it's a great escape from everything that goes into putting out the podcast. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Isn't it amazing that we live in a world where you can get anything you need when you need it right to your door? With DoorDash, you can get pretty much anything. And whether you're sick and you don't feel like getting out of the house, DoorDash has you covered. Maybe you're at a party and you run out of alcohol or ice or something like that, but you want to keep that party going. You need a little assist. DoorDash has you covered. Sometimes my wife and I, we just don't feel like making dinner. We're tired. We want to watch a show. That's when we hit DoorDash. DoorDash makes it easy to get the food that you want without all of the hassle. And I'm always amazed when I go on DoorDash by the selection. You know, whether you're in the mood for fast food or something a little fancy, maybe a nice steak. I know around me, they have just about everything. The hardest part for my wife and I is deciding on what we both want. That's the only trouble we ever have. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered must be 21 and over to order alcohol drink responsibly alcohol available only in select markets frustrated with the local authorities bill took it upon himself to investigate the kyle women's deaths lizzie's brief illness was a mystery and doctors couldn't pinpoint what caused it bill believed someone had poisoned the matriarch and he was pretty sure all three deaths were connected in some way to the osage's subterranean oil reservoir. Bill Smith went to the authorities with his suspicions in Lizzie's death, but by August 1921, authorities hadn't looked into it, nor had they made any progress in Anna's murder. The families of Anna Brown and Charles Whitehorn offered a $2,000 and $2,500 reward, respectively, for information leading to the killer or killers. William Hale, whose nephew had married into the family, came forward and promised his own reward, and was quoted as saying, We've got to stop this bloody business. The estates of Anna Brown and Charles Whitehorn hired private investigators and federal agents led by Agent John Berger were sent to Osage County. For nearly two years, they investigated the murders. Their chief suspect in Anna's death was her ex-husband, Oat Brown. Investigators tried locating him in Ponca City. 25 miles northwest of Greyhorse, but he had gone to Perry, Oklahoma. So the investigators took a train to Perry, where Brown's father lived, but he wasn't there either. Then they heard he was in Pawnee County, so they traveled there. They found him living with the woman he had married after Anna's death. While one agent 
known only as number 46, tried getting information out of Brown. Another agent, known only as agent number 28, talked with a young Native American woman. She told him that a woman named Rose Osage had admitted to her that she had killed Anna Brown after Anna tried seducing Rose's boyfriend, Joe Allen. Allen denied a romantic relationship with Anna. The woman later admitted she lied about this conversation with Rose. Investigators eventually ruled out both Rose and Joe in Anna's murder. Investigators also concluded that Oat Brown did not kill his ex-wife. The private investigators then moved on to a possible suspect named Bill Smith, Molly and Anna's brother-in-law mostly because he had married Rita shortly after Minnie's death, and that looked suspicious to them. Mike Hale, the same man who had offered his own reward, came forward stating to Molly that he did not trust Bill. But Molly didn't believe that Bill was a killer. He was doing more work to solve the murders than the actual lawman, so much so that a few people thought he was getting too close to the truth. By February 22nd, the private investigators had reached an impasse, in the investigation of the murders. Sheriff Freeze had been expelled from office after a jury found him guilty of failing to enforce the law. One night in February, a man named William Stepson, a 22-year-old Osage champion steer roper, received a call and immediately left his house in Fairfax. When he returned home to his wife and kids several hours later, he was severely ill. Hours later, he was dead. After authorities examined his body, they believed he had been poisoned, possibly with strychnine, after he had left his home. But a toxicology exam was not carried out. By this time, scientists had discovered various ways of detecting poison in a corpse. One was through extracting a tissue sample from the body and testing it for the presence of toxic substances, such as strychnine. It's not clear why they didn't do this in this instance. On February 6, 1923, Henry Roan, formerly known as Henry Roan Horse, and a cousin of Molly and Anna Brown, was found dead in his car by Chief of Police Bob Parker and Deputy Sheriff Jim Rhodes. They had received a report of a car in a ravine about four miles north of Fairfax, and they went to investigate. They found Roan dead in the car. He had been shot in the head from behind. The bullet entered the head just to the left and center and emerged near the right eye. Death was instantaneous. It turns out that Molly was briefly married to Roan through an arranged marriage when she was very young. On March 10, 1923, Molly Burkhart suffered another tragedy when a bomb ripped through the home of Bill and Rita Smith, instantly killing Rita and her servant. Bill survived for four days before succumbing to his injuries, some believed Bill might have uncovered the person or persons behind the murders, but if he had, he never said, not even as he lay dying. Then just over two weeks later, on March 26th, an Osage woman died from suspected poisoning, but no toxicology exam was performed on her either. The mysterious deaths didn't stop there. Four months later, on July 28th, Another Osage man named Joe Bates received some whiskey from a stranger. After he drank some, he collapsed and died, leaving behind a wife and six children. 
Joe Bates' death reminded some of a strange death from the month before. On June 28th, a man named George Bigheart fell violently ill and was put on a train and taken to an Oklahoma City hospital. Doctors suspected George had ingested poison whiskey. After learning he may have been poisoned, George contacted his attorney, William Vaughn, and asked him to come to the hospital right away for an urgent meeting, and Vaughn agreed to come. When he got there, George told him he had suspicions about who had committed the murders and had implicating documents to back up his claim. George died the following morning. His attorney, Vaughn, immediately after talking with George, boarded a train that night to return to Pahuska. Early the next morning, the porter went to wake up Vaughn and let him know the train had pulled into the station, but Vaughn had disappeared. His body was later found with a crushed skull on the railroad track near Pershing, Oklahoma. Investigators felt that whatever information George shared with Vaughn got him killed. By August of 1923, after the alarming death toll, the Osage people and their leaders demanded a thorough investigation into the murders and mysterious deaths. The Osage Tribal Council passed a resolution seeking the Justice Department's help. Several Osage convinced a wealthy white oil man named Barney McBride to travel to Washington, D.C. and ask federal authorities to investigate the deaths. Shortly after he arrived in the nation's capital, McBride was beaten and stabbed 29 times. When his dead body was found in a culvert in Maryland, McBride had only his socks and shoes on, and in one shoe was a card with his name on it. Federal agents were sent to Osage County to investigate, but their investigation quickly fizzled. After spending weeks in Oklahoma, they concluded, quote, any continued investigation is useless. By November 1923, the investigation had stopped. But authorities were convinced that the murders were connected, with the exception of Charles Whitehorn's death. In a January 1925 article from the Pawnee Courier-Dispatch and Times Democrat, County Attorney-Elect C.K. Templeton said, Whitehorn was undoubtedly killed during a drunken brawl, but the murder of Anna Brown, the blowing up of the Smith home, and the murder of Roanhorse was part of the plot. In 1925, Tom White, a special agent in charge of the Bureau of Investigations office in Houston, was summoned to Washington, D.C. by a young J. Edgar Hoover, the new director of the Bureau. It wasn't until 1935 that the name changed to the Federal Bureau of Investigations. Hoover ordered White and his team to Oklahoma to investigate the Osage murders, and he put White in charge of the Oklahoma City office. White and his team of agents spent two years working undercover in Oklahoma investigating the murders. Through the investigation, White heard from a number of people that William Hale was responsible for the killings, but proving it was extremely difficult. William Hale did have connections to the case. He was the man who had come forward offering a reward. He was also the uncle of Molly's husband, Ernest Burkhart. Witnesses who could implicate White ended up dead. The agents felt that men in the area, including some lawmen, were part of Hale's criminal network. Any evidence they gathered was merely an unsubstantiated rumor. Eventually, though, White and his team earned the trust of 
some of the locals and members of the Osage who began opening up. The investigators discovered that Hal had persuaded his nephew, Ernest Burkhart, to marry Molly Kyle, a full-blooded Osage. Investigators theorized that Hal then arranged for the murder of her family so he could cash in on each family member's head rights and insurance policies. Molly Burkhart was the only one left standing in his way. By the time investigators had figured out who was behind the murders, Ernest had already started slowly poisoning Molly. On January 8, 1926, William Hale, Ernest Burkhart, and John Ramsey, Hale's hired hand, were arrested in the murders of Henry Roan and the Smith family. On April 30th, investigators arrested Ernest's brother, Brian Burkhart, and Kelsey Morrison, another criminal hired by Hale, for Anna Brown's murder. Brian confessed to aiding in Anna's murder and turned state's evidence, and he was never convicted. On May 18, 1926, Morrison confessed to Anna's murder. He was later convicted and sentenced to life in prison. In June, Ernest Burkhart received a life sentence for the murders of Bill and Rita Smith and their servant, Nettie Brookshire. He was paroled in 1937 and pardoned by Governor Henry Bellman in 1965. Ernest lived to the age of 94. He passed away in 1986. Thankfully, Molly recovered from being poisoned and was granted a divorce from Ernest in 1927. She passed away 10 years later, and her children inherited her head rights. Hale and Ramsey were ultimately convicted of murdering Henry Roan and sentenced to life at the federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas. Hale went through four trials before his ultimate conviction. He was never tried for the murders of the Kyle family. Ramsey confessed to his part in Roan's murder shortly after his arrest. He told agents that Hal paid him $500 and bought him a new car for killing Roan. According to him, he met with Roan near Fairfax, and the two drank whiskey together before Ramsey shot Roan in the head. Incredibly, William Hale was paroled in 1947, serving only 18 years of his life sentence. He then moved to Montana where he worked as a cowboy and a dishwasher, his new life was a far cry from the one he had in Oklahoma. Hale died in Arizona in 1962 at the age of 87. The investigation into the murders of George Bigheart and his lawyer, William Vaughn, was never completed. Pahuska citizens petitioned state officials to investigate their deaths. Governor Jack Walton, assigned a special investigator named Herman Fox Davis to the case. But shortly afterwards, Davis was found guilty of bribery and sentenced to prison himself. Governor Walton later pardoned him, but George and William's deaths went unsolved. In 1992, journalist Dennis McAuliffe was the foreign desk copy editor at the Washington Post. He heard someone say that his Osage grandmother, Sylvia Bolton, had taken her own life in 1925 at the age of 22. His family was led to believe she died from kidney disease. McAuliffe decided to research his Osage heritage and learn more about his grandmother's fate. He took a leave of absence from the Washington Post to visit the Osage tribe's oil-rich land in Osage County, Oklahoma. He was seeking information on his grandmother. McAuliffe thoroughly researched his grandmother's death and the reign of terror. He was convinced that his grandmother did not take her own life, 
but was murdered for her head rights. McAuliffe put his research findings into a book titled The Deaths of Sylvia Bolton and American History. In 1999, he published another book titled Bloodland, a family story of oil, greed, and murder on the Osage Reservation. McAuliffe wasn't raised as Native American. His mother admitted to him one day when he was 15 years old that he was, in fact, part Osage. She told him this after she became ill and believed that she was dying, so she made a deathbed confession to him. But she didn't reveal why she denied him of his heritage growing up. According to a February 1999 article in the Missoulian, quote, With the blood quantum inherited on his mother's side, he became an enrolled Osage tribal member. Homeland Osages have since accepted him as one of their own. In 1925, the U.S. Congress passed a law prohibiting non-Osage people from inheriting the head rights of tribal members with more than one half Osage blood. The bill was created to prevent another reign of terror. The U.S. Department of Interior managed most of the Osage wealth in trusts. Melissa Howe of the Daily Oklahoman wrote a few years ago that, quote, in 2000, the Osage tribe filed a lawsuit against the government alleging historical losses to its trust funds and interest income as a result of the government's mismanagement of the tribe's trust assets. Over a decade later, in 2011, the Department of Interior settled with the Osage for $380 million dollars. The law firm that represented the tribe said it was the largest tribal trust settlement in U.S. history. The Osage Native American murders have been featured in many books. The most recent is the book, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI, written by Lost City of Z author David Grant. And the case will soon be featured on the big screen, and it's set to include a collaboration between Martin Scorsese, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Robert De Niro. Wow, Morph. I mean, you don't really get, you know, three much bigger names than than those three people. You would think with names like that, it's going to be a very big movie. Yeah, I've been looking forward to seeing it ever since I read that they were going to do this film together. And I I know things because of what's going on have been delayed, so I don't know when this will actually come out, but I'm looking forward to it. You know, to me, Morph, this is a case that is both extremely interesting, but also extremely sad. You know, the one thing that really jumped out at me as we were going through this case was the wealth that some of these Osage had accumulated. I mean, you know, you're talking in today's dollars, a million dollars or more. I mean, these were wealthy people. And I think anytime you have that, right, money is such a motivating factor when it comes to people committing crimes. We know it is. You're going to have people trying to figure out a way to get their hands on that money. And I think that's where the, the sad part of the case comes in. You know, how many people lost their lives because some greedy individuals wanted to get their hands on their money? I think it goes to show that almost 100 years later, a lot of murders still boil down to to money, uh, plain and simple. It's really sad to see the Osage people that had to endure 
all these years of violence, especially that one family that it was especially hard hit by uh, the evil plans that these people had. But yeah, I, I think that was one big takeaway, right? So much loss within one family. And then I think the other thing that really jumped out at me, and it's tough, is the fact that, yes, these cases were investigated. But as we talked about, you know, in some of these, it seemed as though, okay, the investigation might have been a little on the light side. Maybe people didn't care as much because the victims were Native American. I mean, I got that sense. How about you? Yes. If this had happened in a predominantly white area where there was a lot of wealthy people in the same income caliber, I think there's a very good chance that there would have been an all-out attempt and efforts to solve solve these murders. And I think that's one thing that you know gets pointed out. Uh, you know, especially in some of the older cases that we cover, but even with some of the newer cases, it's hard not to see the differences in how some cases are handled. There's just there's no way to sugarcoat it. And hopefully that won't always be the case. Hopefully there'll be a way to to put everyone on neutral ground so that everything gets handled properly and that every murder is investigated the same way, regardless of who the victim is. Well, we are making a lot of strides, right? Today in our society, there's a lot of stuff going on. This should be one of those pushes as well. I think you and I have covered some historic cases that go back to chapters in American history. And I think you are similar to to me in that you like to read history and learn from it. And it's nice if we can learn from history to improve things for future generations. Yeah. What's the old saying? If you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. Is that, is that the saying? Yeah. It's so true. And why are, you know, why are we not taking these things that have happened in the past? You look at them, you see, it's not right. So, okay, let's not do that again. It seems like such a simple concept, but I know it's, it, it's not quite that easy. But that's it for the case of the Osage Native American murders. Thanks goes out to Debbie Buck at TrueCrimeDiva.com for writing and research assistance in this episode. If you haven't done so, take a minute. Go out. Give us a five-star rating if you love the show. Keep telling your friends about the podcast. If you want to find us on social media, we're on Twitter with the handle at CriminologyPod. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Criminology Podcast. We're joining our Facebook discussion group, which is Criminology Podcast, Discussion and Fans. All right, another episode in the books, but Morph and I will be back with all of you next Saturday night with a brand new episode of Criminology. So for Mike and Morph, we'll talk to you next week. Take care, everyone.